Maybe seated, and as you are, I would invite you to turn in your copy of the Word of God to Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. And I'm just going to go ahead and read the text and ask you to follow along and on the board and, and on maybe perhaps in your copy of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 2, it is a rather long passage, so I'm going to let you stay seated while we read it this morning. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which was made by the flesh, made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the, of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. And just as a reminder, for the last few weeks, we have been discussing this whole issue of critical race theory, intersectionality, and the modern, at least the current social justice movement. And we're really coming to the end of that. But just in the last couple of weeks, I'm telling you, I've seen this everywhere I went. In fact, one of our members texted me uh, one evening, a few, uh, I think it was, uh, I guess it was last week, where uh, they were even talking about it on the local news. If you get, um, I think it was channel, well, Little Rock, it's channel seven, uh, whatever, uh, I think it was ABC, I'm not sure. But it's all over the place. You're hearing it all over. I've been hearing it in news interviews. I've been hearing it everywhere. And so I hope that this series has been helpful for you. I, I've told you it's, it's not my favorite series I've ever done, but I think that um, everything we've been saying is really leading up to today. And that is what is the genuine biblical reconciliation that we're looking for. Uh, so just by way of reminder, I just want to give you real quick the four tenets that, or really the last three tenets that we talked about uh, because we had our Gideon speaker last week. So uh, the first tenet was that everyone is divided up into two groups, oppressed and oppressors. So you are either oppressed or you are an oppressor. Can't help it. You're born into it. Your, your race, your group that you belong to is the most important aspect of your identity. And that is what they say. Number two that the oppressors rule everyone else through hegemonic power or hegemony. You may remember that word, just think Jiminy Cricket. 
uh, in that uh, he gets to tell us what our conscience says. And hegemonic power is that we determine the values and the rules and the, and the culture and the society and all that. And that's how we rule, apparently. Number three, the oppressed have special insight that no one else has. So if you are a white Christian man, you simply cannot know what anyone else is talking about. You just have to accept it. Also called the standpoint theory of knowledge, also called ethnic Gnosticism. And again, we're not just talking about their experiences. There's a little bit of truth to that, that we do interpret our experiences through our past experiences and such. But it's their interpretation of their experience that trumps truth. And that's one of the major issues, that my interpretation of my life is viewed higher than logic and reason and even facts. And so that's the problem here. But all of that has been trying to lay the groundwork, and I've tried to adequately answer each one by the Scriptures, point by point. But now the question is, is that what does the Scriptures say about all of this? How do we, how do we respond to it all? How do we put it all together? It's not enough for a worldview to identify a problem. Everyone attempts an answer to redeem. How do we solve the problem? But one of the things that I've noticed about CRT and the modern social justice movement is the fact that it actually offers no solution. There is no solution. They'll say, you just have to accept it. Boy, that makes me wanna, doesn't that just warm your heart? Doesn't that just make you want to jump on the bandwagon? There is no answer. There is no hope in CRT. And just like all of these other kind of liberation studies, there, there really is no salvation. There is only grievance. And that's why if you give them an inch, they take a mile. That's why if you give them just a little bit, they take a lot. And they're never satisfied. Vody Bauckham, who is the evangelical champion of late, who has been sounding the alarm to Christians about the dangers of this, here's what he writes. He says, in case you are wondering about CRT's soteriology, there isn't one. Anti-racism offers no salvation, only perpetual penance in an effort to battle an incurable disease. That's all they give us. So they don't offer any kind of salvation whatsoever, but they do offer a form of penance. And here it is. And this is the fourth basic. The fourth basic tenet is this, that the highest moral good that you can pursue is social justice. Now, it's not salvation, but it is penance. The highest moral good that we can pursue is social justice. By the way, aren't you glad as Baptists we don't believe in penance, we believe in forgiveness? There's, there's, no, there's no answer to this. There's no salvation from this. It's just, it's just all our lives. We have to pursue it more and more and more. Now, there's some related concepts, reconciliation, racial reconciliation, equality, justice. You'll hear these words thrown around. But once again, they're doing what they've done with everything else. They're taking words that we will agree with in their classical definitions. So like, for example, how many of us don't believe that there should be racial reconciliation? Of course we believe in that. But what they are saying is that they're taking this word and they're giving it a new definition. 
They're giving it new meanings, and then they're pulling a fast one on everyone else, not being forthright about what their meanings are. See, when you and I think of equality, what do we think of? We think of equal opportunity under the law, right? And, that's how, and I believe every one of us would agree with that. And, and if you don't, then you don't agree with the word of God. Because here's what the word of God says in Leviticus 19.33. He says that you shall treat the stranger who sojourns in your land and you shall do him no wrong. He goes on and he says that you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you and you shall love him as yourself for you also were strangers in the land of Egypt. And so the Bible tells us that we are to be kind to the strangers. In fact, the word, the Greek word translated hospitality, it actually means love of strangers. And so this is not a foreign concept to us, but that is not what they are talking about. They do not mean equal opportunity. What they mean is equity. And in fact, you'll start to hear them use these words interchangeably. What they are seeking is not equal opportunity, but they are seeking equal outcomes. And that's the issue. This is how they make their arguments for inequality. If you, if you listen to the news or you read one of their books, they'll give you, you know, oh, well, this percentage of, of people are homeowners versus this percentage of this people group and, and all of that. Beloved, all they're describing is equity, inequity. Now, there may be reasons for that. There could be a thousand reasons for that. And guess what? Some of it could possibly be racism. We don't deny that. But that is not a proof of inequality. That is inequity. That's an example of inequality. It's not, it's not an example of inequality. It's an example of inequity. Now, is that a good thing? Not necessarily. But they do all kinds of monkeying around with statistics to prove their point. And beloved, here's the danger. The only way that someone can theoretically guarantee equal outcomes is through redistribution of wealth. That's the only way they can guarantee it, supposedly, by seizing your property and distributing it evenly among everyone. That's the only way they can theoretically guarantee equal outcomes. It's a simplistic understanding of Marxism, and it has never worked. Karl Marx said in his Communist Manifesto, he said that there are three stages to a revolution. There is the revolution of the populace, the oppressed to rise up. There is a time of, of total seizure, authoritative power in which the government, the state takes over and then they, and then they rule with an iron, uh, iron fist to seize all property from everyone. And then they finally give up that power and give it to all people evenly. For every modern state that has embraced Marxism, how many of you think made it to stage three? Zero. Not a single one made it past stage two. Once you give a government a pow absolute power, guess what? They keep it. They keep it. And once you give people power, they keep it. This is an atheistic, utopian pipe dream. It cannot work. 
It will never work. And so CRT says we must work for social justice. Even Christian leaders are calling for social justice or some of these buzzwords that are informed by CRT. But the scriptures tell us we are to pursue justice, true biblical justice. And what is that? It is the faithful application of God's word that we are to seek in every aspect of our lives. And beloved, we are not just to seek reconciliation, but the scriptures teach us to pursue reconciliation. Biblical reconciliation. I was going to preach from 1 Corinthians 5 this morning, talking about the ministry of reconciliation. I got to looking through our past sermons and kind of found out Brother Art covered that a few weeks ago. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to stomp all over him. I think I might have done a better job, but anyway. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It was a wonderful sermon, and it was, a, it was kind of a, a preview of what, we're, of what we're talking about today. But he says in 2 Corinthians 5.18 that all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and watch this, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Who has the ministry of reconciliation? Is it the sociologist? No. Is it the psychologist? No. Is it the politicians? No. Who has the ministry of reconciliation? The church. He has given it to the church. And as Christians, we are to practice the ministry of reconciliation in our lives and in our church. And why should we do that? And because Ephesians here in chapter two is gonna give us these three wonderful truths and three wonderful reasons why we practice biblical reconciliation. Now, I'm gonna be honest with you. I don't know that I have time to finish this this morning. So we're going to get as far as we can. Might go a little long. I'm sorry. You'll be glad you stayed, though. So we, we seek reconciliation in the church. Why should we do that? We see that there are three reasons here given in Ephesians. And the first one in verses 11 through 13 says that we seek reconciliation. Why? Because we have been brought near by Christ. Because Christ has brought us near. Paul began Ephesians chapter two by speaking of their reconciliation in Christ, reminding them of who they were. They were children of the devil. They were, they were slaves to the power of the air. They were separated from God. They were children of wrath by nature. And yet God has brought them to himself, living in the lust of their flesh and all of that. And yet we have been saved by grace, not by works, lest anyone should boast. That wonderful section, Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10. But guess what? Ephesians chapter two doesn't end at verse 10. He goes on. And the gospel has implications, not only for our relationship with God, but also with our relationship with one another. And a gospel that does not impact how you treat others, a gospel that does not impact how you relate to others is not a true gospel at all. We don't just get saved so we can be right with God and then live however we want to. But there's a change that takes place in our hearts and lives. And he tells us to remember everything he says in the first half of Ephesians. This is the only command that is given in the first half, in fact. This first word, remember, in verse 11, is the only command in the first three chapters 
of Ephesians. And he wants you to remember, he's, he's kind of doing a rehash here of everything he said in the first 10 verses, but he's, but he's doing it to point out something that is vital to this entire conversation, this entire discussion. He reminds us, first of all, of who we were. In verse 11 and 12, he reminds them that they were Gentiles in the flesh. He reminds them of the division that existed between them and the Jews. They were physically separate from the Jews and hostile. Why are they doing this? Why is he doing this? The goal is not to tell them to remember where they came from, so to speak. You, maybe you've been told that before. You, you better remember where you come from. You better remember where you came from. That, that's not what he's doing. Instead, it's a source of humility. It's a source to remind them that at one time, you were not God's chosen people. Remember that. Beloved, there's only been one chosen nation by God in the history of the earth, and it is not the United States. It is the nation of Israel. So beloved, there was a time in our lives that we were not the chosen people. And that's really the point. He's reminding them of who they were physically in order to remind them of the greater reality of who they were spiritually in verse 12. And Paul could not be more clear in verse 12. In five short sentences, he reminds them over and over and over again from every imaginable aspect of their separation from God. Five realities that every lost person faces. And I wish I could take an entire sermon just to talk about each one, but I'm just gonna mention them. He says, you were without Christ. By the way, in Christ is one of the most commonly used expressions in this book. And yet he tells them at one time, you were without Christ. You were alienated from the citizenship of Israel. I I translate that word citizenship instead of commonwealth. I think it's a better translation. From the people, you you were alienated from the people of God. Strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. The word without God is the word that we get atheist from which is amazing because Ephesus was a center of cosmopolitan religion. The temple of Artemis was there, one of the seven wonders of the world. And yet to deny the God of the Bible is essentially to be an atheist. You're a God denier. You are a God rejecter. It is true that our social identity and our ethnic identity plays a role in our place to the church. And Paul will take note of that. But far more important than your social identity, far more important than your political identity, far more important than your national and ethnic identity is your spiritual identity. Far more important than all of those other things. It doesn't matter where they came from, they were lost. Beloved, if you're lost, if you don't have Jesus Christ, then nothing else matters. Nothing else is eternal, nothing else matters. But now Paul reminds them in verse 13, he says, Yes, who you were, but Christ has brought you near. Praise the Lord. He reminds us not who we were, not only of who we were, but he reminds us that so that he can emphasize who brought us near. 
that you could not have been more separated, more isolated, could not have less similarity between us and Christ, and yet Christ has brought us near. You who were physically, socially, and ethically, none of that is the most important thing about you. Who you belong to is the most important thing about you. There is a sense in which, because Christ has brought us near, we who were nothing like him, we should be willing to bring those who are not like us near to us. That is true. There is a sense in which that's true, but I, I see something deeper here. That Christ has brought us near and that by bringing us near to him, our hearts began to be shaped by his Our hearts become more like him. Just like the closer you get to a campfire, the warmer you get, the more you draw near, and the more often you draw near to Christ, the more like him you become. And the nearer we draw to Christ, the more we're shaped by him. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He says, but we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Beloved, Jesus does not erase our ethnicity. I want you to understand that. Jesus does not erase our ethnicity. He does something better. He brings all ethnicities, all tongues, all tribes, all nations of the earth. He brings them all under his own saving, redeeming lordship. And that's so much better than making everybody the same. I mean, you guys, do all of you guys in here really want to be just like me? No. No. And I don't want to be like you. But I want us all to be like Christ. And that's what's important. True reconciliation happens when all people are submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Christ brought us near. And our goal in the church is to bring others near to Christ. That is true reconciliation. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on. We're to seek reconciliation not only because Christ has brought us near, but because Christ is our peace. Christ is our peace. Look in verse 14. He says, for he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. This, This paragraph is really the anchor of the entire discussion between verses 11 and verses 22, that entire paragraph. That peace is not found in some political ideology. Peace is not found in some cultural concept. True peace is found in a person. And that person is none other than Jesus Christ. That's where true peace is found. He himself is our peace. And beloved, we see this every Christmas when we read verses Micah chapter two, verses, uh, excuse me, Micah chapter five, verses two through five. I won't read the whole section, but we always stop at verse two, right? But if you look on in verse five, it says that the one who is born in Bethlehem, the one who is born to be ruler, he shall be their peace. The child who is born, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Christ himself is our peace. 
And how has he become our peace? Because he made peace. He made peace. And in these four verses, the word peace shows up four times. You think uh, Paul's trying to emphasize something here? Christ himself is our peace. And how did he make peace? Because he made us both one by breaking down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Literally, if you're gonna translate this, it would say the dividing wall of partition. A huge, gigantic wall that stood between the Jews and the Gentiles. And beloved, for Paul, this is no metaphor. That, that wall actually did exist. <laughs> it's funny. We found it. We found an inscription to the outer side of the wall that faced the Gentile courts in the temple. And I won't read it literally, but basically it warns that any Gentiles who pass by that point, any Gentiles who pass into the inner courts of the temple have only themselves to blame for their death. Now that is how you win friends and influence people. If you walk past this wall, you only have yourself to blame for dying. For Paul, that represented the law in verse 15, the law consisting of ordinances, abolishing that law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He abolished that. The law and all of its prescriptions that kept the Gentiles from entering the temple and thus coming near to God. And it created the hostility between the Gentiles and shut out all of them and created the arrogance of the Jews who were being allowed in. Paul says Jesus has torn down that wall in his flesh and in him he has made us both into one, making peace with both groups. Beloved, before we move on, th just think about this for a second. Think about this. What is it that typically divides us from someone else? What is it? Why do we separate ourselves from others? Is it not because they don't live by our rules? Is it not because they don't follow our conventions or our cultural traditions? Do we not think that our ways are better than others? And that's why we keep them away or at least at an arm's distance. I'm not gonna lie to you. I fully believe with all of my heart and at the risk of my position here standing in front of you because I'm sure that many of you might disagree with me, but I suspect there are many who might agree. But at the risk of my own personal safety, I will say publicly and out loud that Miss Merlin makes the best brownies on earth. <laughs> and while others might make me brownies, if Merlin's are here, I'm gonna keep yours at kind of an arm's distance. I'm sorry. Because you don't follow, you guys were really expecting something profound there, weren't you? Uh, really controversial. Let's get them. No, no. <laughs> the, uh, you know, if, if I've got two choices of brownies here, Miss Merlin's and someone else's, hey, I love you, but I'm sorry. Yours are gonna be kept at an arm's distance because hers are the best. I'm I'm sorry. 
Now, now, if Miss Liz brings me a bucket of cinnamon rolls and she brings me a bucket of brownies, I'm gonna have a real dilemma there. <laughs> I so need to lose weight. But anyway. <laughs> Why do we separate people? Why do we keep them at an arm's distance? Is it not because they don't follow our conventions? They don't live by our cultural standards. They don't follow our rules. And Paul is saying here that Christ came and made peace by tearing down all rules. Why? Because there is only one way to God. There is only one way of salvation. There is only one way of holiness. And it comes not through our cultural conventions or customs or traditions. It comes from the blood of Jesus Christ. There are no rules that should keep us separate. There are no traditions that should keep us divided. There are no customs. And Christ brought us peace by tearing down those things so that we can come together and be one as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is one. That is profound. And yet that's what Jesus prayed for us the day, the night he gave his life for us. He became an instrument of his own prayers. He brought he made peace, and then he offers peace. The same message, I quote from Isaiah in verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near, whether you started off as far or whether you started off as near, whether you were raised in church, whether you grew up on the streets, whether you grew up in the ghettos of, of some foreign country or where you were raised on Park Avenue, whatever it is, Christ preaches the same message to you. He preaches peace that there is only one way to access God and that is through Jesus Christ our Lord. Be at the mansions of Beverly Hills or be at the slums of Somalia. There is one way to heaven and it is through the man, Christ Jesus. He offers peace and he did something that neither those who were near nor those who were far could do. Ephesians chapter two, verse 18. For through him, we both have access to, in one spirit, to the Father. That's what it's all about. Inside the temple, there was a massive curtain that separated all people from God. Not even the Jews can enter it, only the high priest can enter, and he could only enter it one time a year. But when Christ died on the cross, something happened. What happened? The curtain was torn in two, giving access to the very presence of God, an amazing demonstration of the access that we now have to the very presence of God. And beloved, if Christ himself ripped apart the curtain that tore us away from his presence, can we not tear down the wall that kept the Gentiles out? When the curtain was ripped in two, the need for the wall was gone. And now we can all approach God. Isn't that profound? Isn't that amazing? The problem with CRT's brand of justice is that they wanna keep everyone divided into classes and races and hope that somehow out of that, we can bring some kind of unity. But Paul says that Christ is our peace. He is our only peace. And that has implications 
for critical race theory and social justice. The, the way to peace and unity, harmony and true reconciliation is not for whites to become like blacks. It's not for blacks to become like whites. It's not for anything else. It's for all of us to become like Christ. That's the way to true reconciliation. It doesn't matter if you're red and yellow, black and white. The way to true reconciliation is that Christ is our peace. John chapter 14, verse 27, Christ said as much. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Watch this. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Christ does not give us the world's peace. He gives us himself. And any kind of peace that the world preaches is a cheap substitution that will not work. So don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid because Christ's pre-peace is the one that we're looking for. And beloved, if Christ tore down the wall of the curtain between you and God, surely we can tear down the wall that we've erected between us and our neighbor. Surely we can tear down the dividing wall that separates us from others. You say, well, you don't know what they've done to me. Do you know what you did to God? Do you know what you did to Christ? Did you, do you know that you were 100% wrong and he was 100% right, which is probably not true in whatever dividing walls we have? But who made all the effort to come and reconcile us to himself? Christ did. Should we not, if, but beloved, if God can tear down the curtain, can we not tear down the wall? So Christ himself is our peace. And finally, and I know I'm running a little late, so just please bear with me. Christ, we seek reconciliation because Christ is building his church. Christ is building his church. Verse 19 says, so then we are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What's the result of all this? We, look at all these words. Look at all these descriptions that he describes us now. And notice how all of them are polar opposite of what he said in verses 11 and 12. We were alienated in verse 12. We are no longer aliens in verse 19. We were strangers to the covenants of promise. We are no longer strangers in verse 19. We were without God in verse 12. Now we are members of his household in verse 19. We were separated from Christ in verse 12. Now in verse 21, it says, in him. In verse 22, it says, in him. We are now in Christ. The very ones who were his enemies, the very ones that hated God, he has brought us to his table, not as slaves, not as even, not as even visitors. He has brought us as members of his own household. Beloved, you are the house of God. It's not this building, it's you. You are the house of God. And he is building his church upon, and, and I gotta be quick, so I'll just summarize this, upon the foundation, which is the apostles and prophets, 
upon the truths of God's word that are applied and lived, but moving on upon Christ himself, who is the cornerstone. Built upon the foundation, Christ Jesus himself, who is the cornerstone, he is building his church. He's not building a new political party or a sociological theory. He is building his church, not upon white culture, not upon black culture or any other culture. He is building his church and he is the cornerstone. He is building his church upon himself. Matthew 16, 18, he says to Peter, I say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church. Who builds the church? It is Christ. I'll meet with other pastors in town and they'll say, well, Randy, what are you doing to grow your church right now? Nothing, I don't wanna compete with Jesus. I want Jesus to build our church, not me. I can't think of a worse thing than a church built by Randy Scott. It's terrible, it's horrible. And look what we see here, it's the whole thing in verse 21, in whom the whole structure, the the universal church, all of us together, red and yellow, black and white, all of us together, the, the whole structure, the universal church being joined together grows into a holy temple of God. Beloved, God is not found, the presence of God today is not found in a building, it is found in a people, and that people is the universal church of Jesus Christ throughout all the world and throughout all the ages. But we also see the local church in verse 22. In him, you also, not the whole structure, but you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's our place in the church. We are being built together, joined together, fitted together to take our place in the temple of God, to be the very dwelling presence of God in our hearts. That is reconciliation. And anything else that the world offers is a cheap substitute. Beloved, no one race is the problem. No one people group is the problem. No one culture is the problem. Sin is the problem. And that means that every single one of us, red and yellow, black and white, is the problem. Every one of us. So if no one race is the problem, that means that no one race, no one culture, no one people group is the solution. Christ is the solution. He is our peace. He has brought us near. He is our peace and he is building his church and the gates of hell itself, though it may squirm, though it may scream, though it may shout, though it may shake or whatever it may bring at us, the gates of hell itself will not stand against the church that Christ builds. CRT is an attack on the gospel. It claims to do what Jesus and his gospel cannot do. But beloved, do not be fooled. Christ is sufficient. He is able. And because he is able, because he is able, he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So let's pursue it. Let's do it. Let's bring people to Christ through VBS, through children's, through teens, through adults, 
through prayer, whatever is possible. I'm so thankful for Miss Sue's testimony earlier, her concern for her friends and telling them and making sure that they know Christ literally in the last hours of their lives. Beloved, let's be about the ministry of reconciliation. Let's be about the heart of our God that is to reconcile us to himself and reconcile one another in him. Do you know Christ this morning? If you don't, then there is no way you can be reconciled and you are simply following the, the laden plans of men that are destined to fail. But Christ has given us the one program, the one place where the, rec, where the true ministry of reconciliation exists. And it's not because we're that great, we're not. But it's, it's because we serve a great God who has given us a great gospel. And I would love to tell you about it. If you don't know Christ as your savior, I'd invite you to come and see me after service. I'd love to talk to you, Brother Roy, Miss Joe, Miss Bobby, Brother Art, Bobby, uh, Layden, others who are here. Come talk to any one of us. We'll skip lunch to make sure you know you're going to eternity with God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for these amazing truths. Thank you for these awesome things that you have given us. Lord, I know I haven't done them justice. There's so much more that needed to be said from these passages. But as we are closing this series and closing this look at a cheap worldly substitute, Lord, we we want to leave being reminded of the truth that you are God, you are our peace, you are everything we need, and you are sufficient for reconciliation on the earth. Father, may we never add the wisdom of man to your wisdom. May we never think that our cheap substitutes can do a better job than you can. Lord, instead, give us your strength and power to pursue the ministry of reconciliation among our community that you've planted us in. So Father, I pray that you will lead us step by step, person by person, heart by heart, one at a time. We will bring this entire city and this entire state to you. God, save your elect and then elect some more. Save them all, Lord. Give us all a wonderful presence of who you are. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're just gonna sing this short verse just a couple of times. Oh God, you are my God.